From the mind of a maniac. Eight horror stories that are interconnected either significantly or slightly and are all bundled into one gigantic collection. That's right, you get eight books for the price of one. Maniac on the Loose, The Nine Lives of Ski Mask, The Craving, The Caretakers, It Lives in the Attic, Goat Sucker, Spirit Stalkers, Hell is Full. All eight books for the price of one. Go to Amazon and search for From the Mind of a Maniac or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. <laughs> I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood Maniac on the Loose. Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Craving Part 1 of 3 The Craving Chapter 1 The Man in Black Darkness Thunder erupts like a whip cracking in the night. Lightning flashes. The man opens his eyes. For a brief moment, he can make out the silhouette of a twisted tree against the dense storm clouds blanketing the sky. Darkness. Thunder rolls. Where am I? The earthy scent of soot is strong around him. A flash of lightning reveals the source of the smell. He is in an empty, muddy field, being pelted by the storm. Beyond that, darkness. The middle of nowhere. Thunder rolls. How did I get here? He tries to think, but has no memory as to how he arrived at this sloppy void location. Who am I? He can't remember his name. He can't remember anything. Blades of rain sting the man's bare arms as he slowly begins to rise. He is a large, muscular man in his thirties. His hands sink into the soft mud as he pushes himself up onto his knees. Lightning flashes. He looks down at his clothing. He is wearing black pants and a tight black t-shirt. This does nothing to jog his memory. He takes in several deep breaths and then coughs a few times before standing. He massages his cold arms, takes in a few more breaths, and freezes as he appears to notice something of interest in the distance. Two red lights illuminate the field. 
He squints, trying to put together in his mind what these lights are, when an engine roars and it dawns on him that he is looking at the back end of a pickup truck. He immediately runs toward the truck. There is no thought process, no reasoning, just action. As he approaches the truck, it peels away, splattering mud on his chest. The man in black continues to run after the truck and gradually slows down as the vehicle gains speed and disappears into the night. Darkness. Thunder rolls. Before he can consider his next move, the man in black screams out and doubles over in excruciating pain while clutching at his stomach. A ravenous craving boils within, tearing at him, and then suddenly stops. He drops his arms to the side and slowly stands erect. His expression has gone stone cold like that of a machine. His eyes open wide and are now filled with purpose as he walks forward at a decisive pace. He knows that the relief will be short-lived. How do I know this? He doesn't know the answer to his question, but for some reason, unbeknownst to him, he knows the cure. The only thing that can stop the pain from returning is to feed this insatiable craving blistering within. The craving to kill. Chapter 2 What Lies Beyond Every cubicle in the office is empty except for one. Becky, a studious-looking woman in her thirties, looks away from her computer monitor at the cold digital stare of the clock on her desk. 7.57 p.m. She bangs away at her keyboard feverishly, obviously frustrated and in a hurry. Her boss, Mr. Holland, a round man in his fifties, approaches her desk. Even from a distance, she can smell the wretched stench of stale coffee on his breath. Becky, are you almost finished? Nope. I need that report by noon tomorrow, Becky. I know that. I couldn't forget that if I tried, because you remind me of that every hour on the hour. It's very important. Becky rises, removes the ponytail holder from her long, light brown hair, and begins packing things into a briefcase as she speaks. I'm fully well aware of the importance. Where are you going? I need wine. I don't have a bottle on me, so I'm going home. Becky. I'll do what I can on it tonight from home as I drink a glass of Merlot. I'll put the finishing touches on it here in the morning. You'll have the full report on your desk tomorrow, with plenty of time to spare. I'd feel better if we had it complete tonight. Becky walks past him toward the exit door. She speaks to him without looking back as she walks. Do you have wine? Of course not. Then I'll see you tomorrow. Mr. Holland says nothing. He simply stands defeated and watches as Becky departs. As Becky exits the building, she is met by a blast of wind. She braces herself and shields her briefcase under her coat while dashing through the rain to her car. Ahead in the distance, 
lightning flashes. Chapter 3 The Truck A semi-truck speeds down the highway, creating a barrier of mist as the massive tires crunch over the soaked pavement. Clutching the steering wheel in one hand while holding a cell phone to his ear with the other, Carl only occasionally glances at the road. His primary focus is on a picture sitting on the dashboard of a woman in her 40s with her arms lovingly wrapped around a young girl in her early teens. Settle down. Don't cry. Listen to me. I love you. I'll do anything for you and my little Lisa. I'll stop. I will. I, I've taken my last drink. No, I mean it this time. No more drinking ever again. Things will be different this time, I promise. I love you too. You give Lisa a little kiss for me. Carl puts the phone down and picks up a flask. He takes a long swig from the flask and wipes his mouth off with the cuff of his sleeve before taking another hearty drink. Carl's face turns to shock as the man in black methodically walks into the truck's path. Oh shit! Loud squeals of rubber fill the night as Carl turns the truck sharply, causing it to jackknife and slide out of control down the slick, desolate highway. It skids roughly off the side of the road, hitting a large embankment, causing it to tip and roll roughly before finally coming to a rest on its side. Carl is jammed against the door. His neck is cocked at an odd angle and his face is embedded with bits of broken glass. He hacks up a mouthful of blood as the man in black climbs through the broken windshield into the interior of the truck. Carl watches as the man moves in close to his face, examining him. Carl tries to say something, but his words are inaudible gurgles. The man in black places his hands on each side of Carl's face. He stares at him for a moment before quickly jerking his hands to the side, snapping Carl's neck. He gently sets Carl's limp head against the side door and notices something. He turns to see the picture of the woman and young girl on the dashboard, now with a large tear across it from the crash. The man in black looks deeper at the picture and then turns to Carl. He continues to look back and forth between Carl and the picture before finally staring regretfully at Carl until his eyes begin to well with tears. No, not you. It wasn't supposed to be you. Without warning, a wave of torturous pain sweeps over him. He grabs his stomach, grits his teeth, and tries fighting it before finally giving in and filling the night with a scream of agony. Chapter 4 The Gas Station As Becky drives through the storm, she slows and looks curiously at the lights shining at odd angles up ahead. Is that fog? Or possibly smoke. 
As she approaches, she squints through the rain-blurred windshield and can make out the truck's steel body wrapped around itself like a broken slinky. Becky stops, takes out her cell phone, and dials 911. There's a horrible accident on Highway 69. I think it's between mile marker 12 and 13. Yes, thank you. Becky puts her cell phone away, opens her door and steps out into the storm and is met by the fading scent of burnt rubber. All is quiet except for the steady rain, occasional clap of thunder, and the light squeal of one of the still-spinning tires. She approaches the twisted cab of the truck. The cab, being on its side, makes it impossible for her to get inside without climbing, so she yells for anyone within earshot. Hello? Is anybody there? Are you okay? If you can hear me, I just called 911. They're on their way. The crunch of rubber soles sliding across asphalt behind her causes Becky to spin around. She tries to shield her eyes from the blinding bright lights of her own vehicle. A dark figure steps in front of the lights. She can only see the silhouette of a man as he starts toward her. Hello? The figure moves closer, and she can begin to make out more details. He is large and appears to be wearing a flannel shirt. When he finally reaches her, she can see he is heavily bearded and wearing a Nashville Predators ball cap. Well, looks like this thing just happened. I got here a few minutes ago. Is everyone okay? I had to climb up into the cab. The driver's dead. Broken neck. It's not pretty. Oh my god. I called 911. Yeah, me too. Uh, look, no need for both of us staying around in this mess. I'll wait here for the cops. I was first on the site anyhow. Are you sure? Yeah. Get on out of here. You be careful. Thanks. Becky turns and starts back toward her car. She doesn't notice the back door is slightly ajar, or the hand reaching over from the back seat and quietly pulling the door shut. As she drives away from the crash site, Becky passes a series of police cars and other emergency-type vehicles heading toward the wreckage. Red and blue lights splash over the interior of her vehicle until they pass. As she looks back at them through the rear-view mirror, she can hear her vehicle begin to sputter and vibrate. Oh, no. As the engine dies, Becky coasts to the side of the road and looks down at the gas gauge that reads empty. Damn it. This stretch of highway is quiet. She guesses that it is probably blocked behind her now, so no vehicles are likely to come her way for assistance until the chaos she passed is clear. She tries starting the car again. Nothing. Great. Just great. She looks down at her cell phone and begins wondering which one of her friends is going to have their night ruined by having to rescue her. Before dialing, she tries starting her car one more time and is pleasantly surprised when it rumbles to a start. She begins driving away but knows she's running on fumes. She'll be lucky if she can get another mile. She squints through the heavy rain cascading down the windshield and sees a medium handwritten sign that says, SIDS, GAS, AND BEER, with an arrow indicating that the establishment is down a small, dreary road off the main highway.
She can see a small, grimy, but apparently operational gas station through the trees. She turns down the lonesome road toward the station. There's a repair garage attached to a tiny main building. Above the door is a sign indicating that this is, in fact, Sid's Gas and Beer. And sure enough, inside the window, she can make out an old refrigerator unit that does appear to house a small variety of beer. The main building has an overhang where two men in their thirties sit shielded from the rain, drinking the inventory. One is frighteningly skinny, and the other is on the portly side. The portly man has a red ducktail beard. The skinny man wears well-used coveralls that are almost as greasy as his hair. Becky pulls up to the single gas pump. The motley duo cackle as Becky gets out of her car and takes the gas nozzle off the tank. The nozzle is slimy, causing Becky to immediately pull her hand back. She whispers to herself as she inspects her palm. I hope that was just oil. She pulls a tissue out of her coat pocket, wipes her hand, and then wraps the tissue around the handle and begins pumping the gas. She glances at the unkept duo and notices the portly man lean over and whisper something into the skinny man's ear. He points in Becky's direction and the skinny man lets out a hearty, wheeze-infested laugh. Becky looks at the gas pump as it finally reaches the $5 mark. She puts the nozzle back, takes her $5 bill out, and quickly jogs toward the men to pay them. When she reaches their vicinity, the skinny man speaks. Oh, there's no charge, sweetheart. Becky looks confused. Before she can say anything, he finishes his statement. We're just gonna let you work it off. The skinny man smiles, revealing a chipped front tooth. The portly man looks Becky up and down. Becky's disgust toward the two filthy individuals shows on her face as she crumbles up the $5 bill and tosses it at their feet. Her plan was to sprint back to her car and get the hell out of there, but before she can even turn, the portly man launches himself from his chair and wrestles Becky to the gravel. He grabs her wrists and pins her to the ground while lying on top of her. Thunder rumbles in the distance as Becky struggles fruitlessly with the portly man. She sees the skinny man rise, stumble, and then steady himself before unzipping his pants. Open wide and say, ah. Becky struggles with all of her might, but she can't budge the portly man. Go to hell. The portly man smiles. This is hell, and we're about to give you a proper welcome. He licks his lips and lets out a cackle. Becky winces from his overwhelming whiskey breath. You'll have to kill me and rape my dead body. If that's how you want it. Becky spits in the portly man's face, but he merely smiles at her, exposing his tainted teeth. The skinny man has planted himself between Becky and her car. A surge of adrenaline rushes through her veins, causing her to fight harder as she witnesses the skinny man drop his pants, thus getting one step closer toward the nefarious goal. Even with the surge of energy, she can't overcome the portly man's grip. She readies herself for the scream of her life, but then stops and bewilderment overcomes her face. The skinny man stops laughing as he notices the change in Becky's expression. It takes him a few seconds to realize that she is no longer looking at him, but rather past him. 
He begins turning in an attempt to see what she is looking at, but two large hands clasp around his throat before he can finish the turn. He is immediately hurled into the gas pump, breaking the protective glass window. The man in black rapidly follows up, grabs the skinny man by the back of the head, and rams his face into the side of the pump. The man in black hears the sound of running footsteps behind him. As he whirls around, he is immediately impacted by the bull rush of the portly man, who drives him back into the gas pump. He continues to slam the man in black against the pump over and over, but makes the mistake of stopping to assess the damage. As the portly man looks up, the man in black slams his fist down across the portly man's nose, shattering it. A waterfall of crimson cascades down the portly man's face. He drops to his knees and topples over. Look out! The man in black isn't able to turn before the skinny man can slam a tire iron down onto his head. Blood begins to stream down the side of the man in black's face as he steadies himself and looks up at his opponent. The skinny man swings the tire iron again, but this time, the man in black catches the skinny man's wrist in mid-flight and immediately clocks him with a perfect right hook to the jaw. The skinny man falls to the ground. The man in black follows him down and punches him two more times, rendering him unconscious. The man in black rises. He stares at Becky for a few seconds before his eyes glaze over and roll back into his head. He staggers a few more steps before falling forward. Becky rushes to his aid. The mysterious man lets out a muffled moan and attempts to lift himself back up. Becky manages to help support him enough to maneuver him to the back seat of her car. She quickly gets in and drives away from the gas station. You're going to be fine. I'm, I'm going to take you to the hospital and call the police. No. No doctors. No police. Becky looks back at the man in black. He has passed out mid-sentence. No doctors? No police? That's probably not a good sign. Confused as what to do, Becky continues to drive on. Chapter 5 The Police Station the police station is swarming with activity. Oscar Sweeney steps into the precinct. He's immediately introduced to the contrasting odors of cologne and body odor mingling in the air. A combination of uniformed men and women scattered together with people dressed in suits, business casual wear, and the occasional jeans and t-shirts pack the room. They're all moving about the station, their cluster of voices meshing together into a constant buzz. Oscar is a short, slightly chubby young man in his early 30s. He is dressed in khaki pants and dress shirt with the two top buttons undone revealing a white cotton t-shirt underneath. Over the dress shirt he wears a short lab coat. He is obviously nervous. His forehead is beaded with sweat, which he occasionally wipes away with his forearm. He scans the area, trying to determine whom he needs to speak to, and finally decides that the desk sergeant is the proper place to start. Oscar steps up to the desk and speaks to a police officer in his 60s, whose nameplate reads Sergeant Wojohowicz. 
Oscar grows more nervous as he prepares to speak. Excuse me, sir. Sergeant Wojohowicz does not look up from the paperwork he is thumbing through when he answers Oscar. Yeah? Um, I think I need to speak to somebody in charge. Well, I'm in charge of the front desk, so you can start with me. Oh, um, I, I need to report a crime. Sergeant Wojohowicz looks up. You've come to the right place. That's our specialty. Oscar looks around anxiously as Sergeant Wojohowicz continues. What kind of crime are we talking about? Oscar's breath is short as he licks his lips. A murder? Sergeant Wojohowicz raises his eyebrows. Okay, you've got my attention. How about a little elaboration? Oscar continues to fidget and gaze around. His nervousness has reached the point that Sergeant Wojohowicz comments on it. Relax, son. You're safe here. We can help you. Now tell me who was murdered. Okay. Nobody's been murdered yet, but I know somebody who is going to be murdered. Who? Oscar clears his throat and lets out a hoarse answer. Me. You. Before Oscar can say anything else, a man in a suit calls for Sergeant Wojohowicz. Uh, excuse me for a moment. Sergeant Wojohowicz steps away from his desk and walks deeper into the main portion of the station. Oscar watches on as the suited man speaks to the sergeant. The suited man points to Oscar while Sergeant Wojohowicz turns, looks at Oscar, and nods. Oscar begins to back up. He bumps into a man behind him who cries out, Hey, watch out! Oscar slowly backs toward the front door of the building. Sergeant Wojohowicz notices that Oscar is moving toward the door and steps away from the suited man as he speaks. Mr. Sweeney, wait right there. Oscar whispers quietly to himself, I never told you my name. The sergeant moves briskly toward Oscar. Wait right there. We have some people who want to speak with you. I never told you my name. Oscar turns and runs. Somebody stop him. Oscar barrels out of the front door and bumps into a plain-clothed person. He pushes him out of the way and runs down a nearby steam-ridden alley. As he reaches the middle of the alley, he looks over his shoulder to see at least two plainclothes men chasing after him. He can occasionally hear the men yell, STOP! At the end of the alley, Oscar quickly turns onto a busy sidewalk. He immediately stops running and walks casually in an attempt to blend in with everyone else. He takes off his lab coat, bundles it into a ball, and tosses it into a nearby garbage can. He nonchalantly hails a cab and gets in just as the two men burst out of the alley. They stop and look around feverishly but do not spot Oscar as he closes the cab door. The cab driver looks back at the sweating man who is breathing heavily and anxious. Where to, buddy? Just drive, please. As the cab speeds away, Oscar looks back at the two men who were chasing him. They are now trotting off in the other direction. Oscar leans back against the cool, soothing vinyl seat and lets out an audible breath of relief. <sighs> Chapter 6 Red Flags 
Paul, a tall, lanky male nurse in his early 30s, is going through some files behind the nurse's station. He seems to be at wit's end, having it out with another nurse. No, this isn't what I asked for. I swear, if I need something done, I'm better off just doing it myself. He looks down at his wristwatch. My shift can't end soon enough. Becky approaches the nurse's station. She is soaked, ragged, and filthy. Paul notices her, his face expressing his genuine concern. Hey, you look like absolute hell. What happened to you? Paul, I need your help. The back door of Becky's car is open. Paul is bent over, inspecting the man in black, who is vaguely conscious, occasionally moving his head around and moaning. His words are light, but audible. No doctors. Just let me rest. I'll be okay in the morning. No doctors. No police. Paul rises up and looks at Becky. He speaks discreetly. I'm calling the cops. I wish you wouldn't. Becky, you were only two sentences into your story before I lost track of all the red flags. We need to call the cops. He saved my life. For all you know, he could have been with them. He might have just been pissed off that they didn't let him go first. We need to get the authorities involved, to even consider otherwise as pure insanity. He wasn't with them. I know he wasn't. He saved my life, Paul. He saved me. Maybe this doesn't make sense to you, but if all he wants is one night of rest and no doctors or police, well, I feel like I owe that to him at the very least. Becky notices that Paul is looking at her as though she has really lost her mind. Go ahead and call me crazy. Crazy. Very crazy. And he's probably crazier than you are, and I'm probably the craziest one out of all of us because I'm so desperate to land a second date with you that I'm actually willing to go along with this. Really? Maybe they'll let us share a padded room when this is over. We'll take him to my place, but there's one condition. What? If he makes one suspicious move, I call the cops. She nods in agreement. Deal. And you let me take you out to dinner on Friday night. She smiles. That's two conditions. Math never was my strong suit. Come on, we had fun on our first date. You want to hear my theory? <laughs> sure. You like me. You like me so much, in fact, that it scared you and kicked you into cautious mode. Becky smiles. You amuse me. Okay. I agree to your terms, except I'll be the one taking you out to dinner. Now that sounds like a plan, and I'll warn you up front. I'm getting lobster. The man in black is laid out on Paul's couch. Paul is putting the final touches on a bandage for his head. He rises up as Becky enters the house with a gym bag in her hand. That ought to do it. Did you find some clothes in your car? My gym stuff. Do you mind if I take a shower? I insist. You need one. They exchange smiles, and she heads upstairs. Once she is out of sight, Paul takes a roll of duct tape out of a drawer. He pulls a strip out. Becky, freshly cleaned, comes down the stairs drying her hair with a towel. She is in sweatpants cut off at the calf, a t-shirt, and anklet socks. Her eyes open wide when she sees that Paul has bound the man in black's hands behind his back and his ankles together. What are you doing? I'm playing it safe. Paul! Look, when he wakes up, if he doesn't appear to be demented, I'll cut him loose. Her expression conveys disapproval. 
Becky, we're already doing a lot of very dumb things tonight. Let me redeem myself slightly by trying to do something somewhat wise, okay? Fine. Go on up and sleep in my room tonight. I'll stay here and keep an eye on our friend. Are you sure? I can stay down here too. I got this. You go ahead. She starts up the stairs and then turns to Paul. Thanks again, Paul. For everything. Paul winks at her and she goes upstairs. Once she is out of sight, he walks slowly to the kitchen and slides a large knife out of a wood block. He quietly pulls a kitchen chair into the living room and places it ten feet from the couch that the man in black occupies. Hours have passed. Paul is asleep in the chair. The knife has fallen from his grip and sits loose on his lap. The man in black's eyes are open and focused on the knife. Chapter 7 Trial and Error The room is mammoth and sweeping. Cinder blocks form large walls. The dungeon-like architecture doesn't fit with the modernistic technology lining the area. Several consoles with various flashing lights and buttons are positioned in the middle of the room. The walls are ruled by various screens. Some of the screens have charts, figures, and text. Most have various maps and radars. Dr. Howell, a diminutive gray-haired man in his 60s, wearing a lab coat, sits at a console and stares at a screen. On the screen is a digital map of the western portion of Kentucky. He eyes the screen next to it, which displays a zoomed-in digital map focusing on the Hopkinsville area of Kentucky. His attention is on a small, blinking red light. The dark room is temporarily lit as Lou enters the building from outside. He is a rough, barrel-chested man wearing a fedora and trench coat. The glow from his cigarette lights up his hardened face. He stands atop a metal landing and looks down at Dr. Howell. Dr. Howell continues eyeing the red blinking light on the Hopkinsville map as he speaks. His truancy is unexpected. I dropped him off in the perfect place. It was exactly what you asked for. Apparently too far away. Trial and error. Dr. Howell continues staring at the red blinking light. Lou takes another drag off of his cigarette and exhales a cloud of smoke into the damp air. He could be asleep. He should have more important things on his mind than rest. This is disturbing. Lou doesn't respond. He merely waits for the instructions he knows are coming. Follow him. Lou walks down the thin metal staircase which clanks loudly with each step. He walks to a desk near the area of Dr. Howell, opens a drawer, and removes a small device that is similar to a walkie-talkie. Lou pushes a button on the side of the device, which activates a beep sounding off in intervals of three seconds. Subtle flashing strobes at the top of the device accompany the beeps. Lou and Dr. Howell both startle slightly from a metallic crash and rattle coming from a thick metal door in a distant portion of the building.
Chapter 8 An Awakening Becky opens her eyes. It was easier to fall asleep than she anticipated. She begins stretching but stops as her mind catches up and she becomes curious as to how things are downstairs. Becky descends the staircase and stops abruptly. Her eyes widen with surprise. Paul? Paul opens his tired eyes slowly and then alertly sits up. The man in black sits on the couch with the knife in his hand. The duct tape that had previously bound his wrists and ankles are now in neat piles on the coffee table in front of them. Paul does a good job of keeping his wits about him. He speaks slow and carefully to the large man. Everything is all right. Don't do anything rash, okay? We're just going to stay right here. We won't try anything. The man in black's expression is stone and difficult to read. He looks from Paul to Becky, who is still on the stairs. You saved me last night. You were injured. You said you didn't want to see any doctors or police, so we brought you here. Paul speaks up. So please, reward our stupidity by not trying to hurt us. The man in black looks at both of them for a moment with the same hard-edged expression, and after a moment, sets the knife down on the table in front of him. I won't hurt you. I appreciate what you've done for me. Becky lets out a deep breath, loosens up, and approaches him. She extends her hand. Thank you. I'm Becky. The man in black takes her hand and shakes it slowly while looking into her eyes. Becky gives him a brief moment to offer up his name and then intercedes when he continues to stare at her while saying nothing. And you are... The man in black seems to ponder the question. He even looks away from her in a moment of thought. He's hesitant and without confidence when he begins speaking. Um... Morgan? Paul raises his eyebrows and he and Becky exchange glances. Are you sure? The man in black ponders Paul's question for a moment before sitting upright and nodding assuredly. Morgan. My name is Morgan. Paul gives Morgan a courtesy wave. And I'm Paul. Paul points to the rather filthy nature of Morgan's attire. You can take a shower if you want. Morgan looks himself up and down. A shower? Yes. I'd offer to wash your clothes, but I use a laundry mat. I do have some hospital scrubs that will probably fit you, though. Thank you. That's very kind. As Morgan disappears up the stairs, Paul looks at Becky and shrugs. Don't ever call me impolite. Becky and Paul are slightly stunned as they watch Morgan wolf down breakfast. Morgan is freshly cleaned and wearing a pair of black hospital scrubs. He shovels three or four mouthfuls of scrambled eggs in his mouth before even beginning to chew and quickly follows that up with several huge bites of Texas toast. Hungry? Becky rolls her eyes at Paul for his sarcastic comment and tries to make conversation with Morgan. So Morgan, where are you from? Morgan stops eating for a moment and reflects upon the question. After several seconds, it is clear that Morgan is struggling with the supposed simple question, so Becky opts to go another route. Is there anything else you need? His mind switches off the food and he becomes serious. Nashville. 
I have to get to Nashville. Is that where you live? Morgan thinks, but there is no spark of recognition in his expression as he repeats himself. I have to go to Nashville. Paul and Becky look at each other. Paul raises his eyebrows. I'd ask you what you'd do for a living, but I'm afraid of what the answer might be. Construction. Morgan pushes his breakfast plate forward, indicating he is finished. He suddenly grasps his stomach in pain. He winces slightly and then doubles over and lets out a loud groan. Paul instinctively rises in an attempt to assist him, but Morgan holds him off. Don't touch me. Paul stops and looks at Becky with concern. Okay, chill out, big guy. Morgan takes a few deep breaths as the pain subsides and he rises. I'm sorry. I have to go. I have to get to Nashville. He stands up. Well, how are you going to get there? Nashville is a good hour away. Morgan starts for the door. I'll hitchhike. Thank you both for your hospitality. Hitchhike? Paul can read Becky's mind and tries to stop her. Becky, don't. Would you like me to drive you? And she did it. Paul looks at Becky, befuddled. Morgan is quick to accept. Too quick. If it's not a burden, I would appreciate that. Paul shakes his head. Becky. Look, I'll drop him off in Nashville and that will be that, okay? Well, I can see that I'm not going to be able to talk you out of this, so I'm going with you. Don't you have to work today? I have some sick days left and I hate that hellhole. This will actually be a vacation for me. And... Lobster for dinner tonight sounds great. Paul grins and gets up from the table as Becky pulls her keys from her bag. Chapter 9 Jack Frost Soon A flock of geese glide over the well-manicured quiet park. A cool breeze cuts through the trees, flinging some loose leaves onto the ground next to Jack Winters. He is a well-built man in his early forties. His jet black hair is medium length. He is wearing a white jumpsuit with the words Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital stenciled on the breast. Underneath that it reads patient 1112 Three, seven. Jack sits on a picnic table located on top of a gently sloping hill. The hill isn't steep, just high enough to overlook the rest of the park. He looks up at the geese as they fly overhead. Free. He shuts his midnight black eyes and takes in a deep breath of fresh air before reopening them and gazing around at his surroundings. Two other men sit at an adjacent picnic table wearing the same outfit, the only variance being that they have different patient numbers. Next to them is a doctor wearing a tweed jacket and writing in a notebook as he speaks to one of the patients. The doctor has a badge on his jacket that reads Dr. Lawrence Richards. Jack then eyes the two armed guards who are more relaxed than they should be. They are chit-chatting in the distance. One of them is smoking. Occasionally, they laugh. As no one is watching him, 
Jack reaches down and picks up a thick broken branch, which lies next to the picnic table. The edge is jagged. He rubs his thumb over the tip of the stick, looks up, and smirks. Soon. The Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital is unusually quiet. Dr. Franklin Grimm, the head of the hospital, approaches a large cell door. He stops and punches a code into a digital box next to it. The cell door slides open. He steps in and the door shuts behind him. In front of him is another cell door, and on the other side is a guard. The guard punches in a code on his side of the cell door, and it opens. Dr. Grimm steps through, takes a clipboard from the guard, and begins writing on it as the cell door shuts behind him. I didn't expect you until this afternoon, Dr. Grimm. Dr. Grimm continues to write as he speaks. What are you talking about? This is my morning with Jack Winters, you know that. I know, but he's gone today. Dr. Grimm looks up. The guard has gotten his full attention. Gone? What the hell are you talking about? He went on that field trip today. Field trip? Your signature is on the orders. The guard lifts up a clipboard. Dr. Grimm snatches it from the guard's hands and begins rifling through the papers. No, 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 no. This is, this is supposed to be authorization for Jack Winters to have outside privileges once a week. Under armed supervision. On the hospital grounds. The guard stammers. Uh, well, there must have been some confusion with the paperwork. A frantic Dr. Grimm grabs the guard by his shirt and screams at him. Are you telling me that Jack Frost is on this field trip right now? Y yes, y yes he is. Dr. Grimm lets the guard go and takes a moment to take in this reality. Dear God. The sounds of chirping birds and buzzing insects fill the air. The two guards, two patients, and the doctor are sprawled out over the grassy hill, covered in blood and extremely dead. One of the guards has no clothes on. Jack Winters walks down the hill wearing the guard's uniform, twirling a set of keys and whistling Jimmy Crack Corn. He smiles at the geese soaring above him. Free. Chapter 10 Arrival Morgan sits in the passenger seat and rattles off directions very similar to that of a GPS. In two miles, take the exit right, then stay in the right lane. Becky follows his precise instructions, but his robotic-like actions cause her to often glance at Paul, who is in the back, but leaning up between the two front seats. Paul's expression confirms the oddity. Between directives, Morgan looks out of the window intently. 
He makes no attempt at conversation or small talk. He is solely focused on his surroundings. Exit right. Becky does so. In 200 yards, turn right. Becky drives deeper into the outskirts of Nashville as Paul attempts to make conversation with Morgan. You seem to know your way around. Are you originally from Nashville? Morgan breaks his concentration and looks at Paul rather perplexed. His eyes show a spark of life and he speaks after a moment of deep thought. No, I'm not. He continues to think and then quickly diverts his attention back to their location. Right turn ahead. They draw closer to an intersection. Turn right. Do you have family out here? This question also breaks Morgan's concentration. Family. He reflects for a moment. No. My parents died when I was young. I'm an only child. Oh, that must have been difficult. Morgan's eyebrows crinkle down as he attempts to remember more. Sorry, I didn't mean to pry. Morgan's intense expression goes blank as he looks up and out the window again. Left turn ahead. Have you lived in Nashville long? Again, Morgan drops his concentration from the direction and considers the question. His gaze drifts as he thinks and then looks at Paul. Morgan appears baffled. This is the first time I've been here. He looks around for a moment with a feeling of disconnect and confusion. This is the first time I've been here? He is bothered, but quickly brushes off the thought and goes back into serious mode as he looks out the window. Turn left. Becky looks at Paul with a puzzled expression, leans over to him and whispers, I think I should have listened to you. Paul whispers back, In time you'll learn that this will usually be the case, but we can discuss that over our lobster dinner. We have reached our destination. Stop here. Becky stops outside an old three-story brick home. It's in early stage of deterioration. One may get the impression that it is abandoned. She scans the area and realizes that this house is not unlike the majority of the houses in the neighborhood. Morgan exits the vehicle and stops after taking a few steps toward the house. He turns and bends down. He looks directly at Becky. Thank you. For everything. I Morgan can't finish his sentence. He grabs his stomach and doubles over in pain, gritting his teeth and wincing, before he lets out an excruciating moan. He is crumpled by a second more intense surge of torture. He clutches his stomach and cries out again before turning and running as fast as he can to the porch of the house. When he reaches the front door, he stops and immediately kicks it in. He still appears to be in pain as he enters the house at a furious pace. Becky and Paul stare at the house dumbfounded. Paul finally turns to Becky. Let's get the hell out of here. Paul's sentence is barely out of his mouth before Oscar Sweeney crashes through a first floor window onto the lawn. He lies on the ground rolling slightly and groaning as Morgan appears in the window behind him. Morgan backs up from the window in a hurry, obviously looking for a quick exit to come out and finish the job. As quickly as he can, Oscar rises from the ground and runs to Becky's car. Help me! Before Becky and Paul can react, Oscar opens the back door and attempts to jump in. Help me! He's trying to kill me! 
Morgan jets out of the house and launches himself into the car before Oscar can close the door. Morgan crashes on top of Oscar, who falls back heavily onto Paul, pinning him down. Morgan immediately positions himself on top of Oscar, puts both of his hands around Oscar's throat, and begins squeezing. Morgan snarls and bares his teeth as he begins to choke the life out of Oscar. Paul attempts to break Morgan's hold, but being on the bottom of the pile, he is at too awkward of an angle to be effective. Becky screams and tries her best to push Morgan off, but he's too strong and determined. Oscar tries to speak and tries to scream, but the pressure of Morgan's grip only allows an occasional gag to slip through. Oscar's face turns red, and his eyes begin to roll up into his head. Becky continues to attempt to break Morgan's stranglehold. Her physical attempts are futile as she grabs his head and tries to turn it toward her. Morgan continues with the murderous task at hand, but occasionally his eyes dart to the side and he catches a glimpse of Becky pleading. Each look at her seems to chip away at his determination. The looks grow more frequent and become longer. Morgan, stop! Don't do this, Morgan! You're killing him! You're going to kill him! Listen to me. You are not a killer. This isn't you. If you were a madman like this, you wouldn't have saved me last night. You wouldn't have cared. Let him go, Morgan. Let him go. You are killing him, Morgan. You're killing him. Morgan loosens his grip slightly as he stares at Becky and carefully listens to what she is saying. He finally takes it all in and breaks his hold on Oscar. Morgan collapses back into the seat exhausted and confused. He covers his face with both of his hands and lets out a frustrated whisper to himself. Who am I? Oscar lies in the same position for a moment, hacking, wheezing, and trying to fill his lungs with air. He finally raises up and coughs profusely. As soon as his lungs fill with air, he frantically speaks to Becky. Go! Drive! Go! Becky pulls out her cell phone. I'm calling the police. Oscar slaps the phone out of her hand. No! They're in on it! You have no idea what you've gotten yourself into! They're going to kill us! Go! Now! Becky is defiant. Get out of my car right now! Oscar attempts to collect himself. I know it sounds crazy, but if this guy found me, they know I'm here. If you don't step on that gas pedal right now, someone is going to walk up to this car and shoot all of us. Becky doesn't budge. I said get out, and Morgan, you go with him. We are out of this as of now. It's too late. They know who you are now, too. Paul rises up and looks out the rear window. He notices a pickup truck parked a few spots down on the other side of the road. The driver's side door opens and a man begins to step out. Uh, Becky, just to be on the safe side, I think you'd better drive. Becky glances past Oscar at what Paul is viewing. She shoots Oscar a look of anger, turns, and steps on the gas. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Be sure to visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com 
Sign up for the free newsletter and receive a free book and movie. We'll see you soon. Very soon.